and welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, talking today on the day after the Watkins Glen International Race won by William Byron. One more race to go in the regular season. That's at Daytona. And here to talk about all of it is our resident Hall of Famer, NASCAR and NBC analyst, Dale Jarrett. DJ, thanks for being here. We'll start with William Byron wins this race. It's his first on a road course. He's now got nine victories and he's got wins on super speedways, on a short track at Martinsville, intermediate tracks. Now he's got the road course. Pretty complete body of work for William Byron this early in his career. He's still only 25 years old. For you, I know you're a Hall of Famer, former cup champion, but 32 victories, you actually never won on a road course. You had that pole at Watkins Glen, but never actually got the victory. So what do you think it means for a driver like William Byron to sort of fill out his resume and get that win on a road course? Yeah, a, a huge win for for William Byron and his team. And, you know, to, to think that this young man, um, I mean, I, I feel like that he should be older than 25 because I know, you know, he came in at such a young age, I guess at 19, you know, he was uh, in a cup car. And, you know, to see him round into the complete driver that he is now, I, it says a lot. That's the probably the one thing that I wish that I would have been able to do uh, is win on a road course because I think that it completes your resume as a driver. And um, it was just phenomenal what William Byron was able to do. And again, as you pointed out, he's put the numbers up on every different type of track. And and these numbers are only going to continue to add up. Uh, you know, I don't know that we're looking at a uh, Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson uh, type numbers uh, from Hendrick Motorsports, but he's certainly going to be uh, someone that if he can stay healthy and continue uh, at this, um, th- there's no reason that he can't win five to seven races uh, each and every year. And um, you, you think about that over a career, then you're going to look at over over 50 wins uh, by the time that he's finished well over that. And so, um, you know, he, he certainly has, in my mind, uh, established himself as the favorite again because of he's able to win uh, at at pretty much any type of track uh, that that's going to come up in the playoffs. So uh, again, just a great job to have that in your pocket that the competitors know now that there isn't anywhere that you go that you can't put William Byron's name in the mix that that he can possibly win the race. That five to seven victories number you cite there, DJ, is interesting because when I had Steve Wittard on the podcast, the last time William Byron won, we had him on after that. And Stevie cited a sim- similar number. He felt like about five rate wins a year is about what he would expect right now from William Byron and his crew chief, Rudy Fugel, obviously been a phenomenal pairing together. So as I mentioned, William Byron doesn't turn 26 until after this season, but this is his sixth full season in the Cup Series won the Xfinity Series Championship in 2017. And I think it's interesting, DJ, I was thinking back on this today. William Byron, it's well documented that he learned to race on iRacing, that this is a guy who didn't get into a Legends car until he was 15. I don't think he got into a stock car until he was 16. And then four years later, he's winning the Xfinity Series Championship in 2017. So now he's 25 and he's a cup championship contender. But even though he learned to race on iRacing, he essentially has never stopped doing the iRacing. And Jeff Gordon talked about this after the race where he said that. But I do love his you know, tenacity and, and just you know, the, the way that he approaches every single weekend. And, and when you have a driver like that that is 
you're saying give give me as much information as I possibly can, whether it's pit road or restart selection or or you know gear selection, what you know braking zones, all those things. Like William does, he gets in the sim. You know, he's it, it's it's about helping to develop our tools and make them better, as well as make the himself better and the team better. And and he's all in. And you know, I, I mean, you still have to have the other ingredients to go along with it. And I think that that's what's making them have a, a standout breakout, you know, type of year because the effort they're putting in, as well as the the tools that they have at their disposal. And Byron said it right away in his interview with us right after he won the race. He said, uh, I did a lot of laps on iRacing this week. <laughs> I got a new simulator at home. So I know that's a little different for somebody of your generation, DJ, because it just it seems so different. But it seems like this is the way young drivers hone their craft now. Not only does William Byron learn to race on iRacing, but he actually yeah. improves on iRacing as well. Yeah, Nate, I was thinking yesterday as I was watching the race and then hearing his comments after that and then reading things that, that as you pointed out, that Jeff Gordon was talking about. I think this is the kind of, in my mind, the, the, the first new age uh, driver, if you will. We've heard about iRacing for a number of years and the drivers that are there and the ones that you know have participated over the years and, and are really good at that. But William Byron is the first to take it to an actual race car and race track and compete at the highest level in a in a short amount of time as you pointed out it, this all happened so very quickly uh, for him to uh, get in the legends cars and then get into stock cars and then hendrick motorsports to to hiring and then he quickly wins the the Xfinity championship and, and now uh, is going to be competing for a cup championship this year so this is kind of opening the door, I think, for more opportunities there. You know, we had that wave back when Jeff Gordon uh, was the first to come from kind of the open wheel ranks, if you will, that a lot of owners said, you know, this is what we have to have. So then it was Tony Stewart and Ryan Newman and and that, you know, it goes on and on. Obviously, Larson, a big part of that, too, and, and a number of others. But I think this might be something that, that we're going to see more of now you know this type of talent that william byron has and possesses and uh his willingness to work at his craft which you have to do this day and time in particular you've always had to do it but you know it it makes me it makes me smile to realize that this young man is working that hard because too many get the opportunity and i'm not sure they put forth the effort that it takes thinking that okay i made it this far just on talent that's not going to get you to where you have to be this day and time so you know i, I think we're seeing something new and uh, it's kind of refreshing yeah it's it's totally different than my era but so many things are uh but but this is going to be interesting to follow it's totally different from your era dj but in a way i almost feel like he's a little bit of a throwback because, and you touched on it, I mean, when we had the wave of younger drivers come in after Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart, both of them started essentially when they were like five or six in go-karts. Yeah. And then that became the mantra that you got to get your kid in go-karts as soon as he's, you know, before he's able to walk, like get him in a car, get him driving, get him on racetracks. And now you have William Byron who doesn't really start driving until he's essentially a teenager. Even though he's embraced this new fangled sort of era of sim racing and study all the data, it reminds me a little of, I mean, your generation, you didn't race a stock car until, 
how old were you? I mean, were you yeah, in your 20s? Yeah, 20, 20 years okay. old. So, yeah. so in a way, it's it's sort of an endorsement of you can still do it that way if you're willing to put in the work and if you sort of have that God-given ability, that talent to be able to drive a race car. Yeah, that's a great point, Nate, that, that you do that. And I think on the side of it, too, you, you don't have to worry about William Byron being someone that maybe gets burnt out earlier because of that he started this at five or six years old. And, and I'm not saying that that always happens, but, you know, I can think about, you know, young people starting baseball um, at, at five and six years old. And, you know, by the time they get through the ranks of, of going through high school and playing summer ball all the time, just constantly, and, and then their opportunity comes to either go to the majors or, or whether it's going to college and playing then, you know, their, their careers are, are obviously shorter, but, you know, do they get burnt out to some extent? And you look at Brexton Bush and, and Keelan Harvick, you know, they're, they're getting great opportunities to start when they're young, but will they continue that? You know, they're, are they getting to be a kid, uh, which it seems that that's what William Byron was able to do and then figure these things out as, as he gets older and, and probably able to comprehend more of it at, at that point in time. So, you know, you can make an argument for both, certainly, but I really believe this will open some eyes to people that maybe felt like that because they didn't get the opportunity to start at five or six or eight years old, you know, racing go-karts or some type of midget cars uh, that they can't get in the sport anymore. I think this shows that, yeah, there is an opportunity still there for you. So obviously sim racing and all this data wasn't available in the 1970s when you were <laughs> getting into race car driving. But when you started driving a stock car age 20 and you didn't have access to that, are there things that you were able to do to kind of bridge the gap from people who might've started ahead of you, drivers who had that leg up on number of laps or experience in years in the car? What were things that maybe you did then to kind of close that gap that might still be applicable to say a William Byron or somebody following that path who gets into racing a little bit late? What did you do and what maybe can people still do now? Yeah, I, I think that in my case, I, I knew that I was late uh, in, in getting started, even at that time, uh, that there were people that were starting to drive at 14 and 15 years old, and, and which is along, as you pointed out, along the lines of what William Byron did here. So I, I felt like that I had to catch up in a way that I had to know the race cars, uh, didn't know how to work and build cars, but I learned how to do all of that. So I knew what made the cars work. Uh, the other thing that I had to do was be take my race cars and, and to the racetrack and actually test as much as I possibly could. So, you know, my simulation was, you know, going to the track and, you know, looking at lap times, going by the feel of the car that I had. So, you know, it, you just do it in different ways. And, and now, you know, that way is that, you know, the, the good thing about iRacing, the experience that they can obviously get there is not a, a true sense in the ways that, the way that I was doing it, I sometimes crashed my cars in trying to to get better. And, uh, you know, when you do it on iRacing, well, you just reboot and go on again, I assume, uh, is the way that you do it. And it doesn't hurt nearly as much, uh, whether it's your your pocketbook or your feelings or you physically. So uh, there's there's a lot to be said for that and, and learning to do it this way. But But that's the way that I had to catch up. And then the other side of it was to just be a sponge, to be around. Jack Ingram and Tommy Houston and, and Tommy Ellis and Sam Ard and, and all of the greats that I was able to, to grow up around as I got my racing career started uh, and just listen and take anything that they were willing to talk to me about. Um, you know, Harry Gant was a big help. 
uh, someone that I always listened to. So, you know, that was how I had to do things. And so I think you can still be that in getting that information, listening and watching. And of course, now, you know, they have the, the data and the, the ability. I'm not going to say that I totally agree with the fact that in race, the teams can get what other drivers are, are doing and relay that information to their drivers. I'm never going to be a fan of that. But that information is there. And if you have that, you have to use it to your best advantage. There's definitely uh, some edges that drivers have that past generations did not. And speaking of being a sponge, obviously, William Byron clearly has had that teamed with Jimmy Johnson at one point, now has Jeff Gordon as a mentor, driving his number, driving the number 24 and putting that in victory lane at Watkins Glen. I want to talk about the Glen a little bit, but before we move on from that, DJ, have you ever done iRacing or any sort Never. of? Never. Never. Okay. No, no. <laughs> no inclination? Video games were not my thing, even doing and simulating and even different things that came along, you know, opportunities to get involved early on with the games that they were were putting out there and stuff. I never was very good at it. So other than the game of golf, that's the only thing that I continue to do that I'm not very good at anymore. So, uh, uh, but other things, if I'm not good at it, I try to stay away from it. I appreciate <laughs> that perspective. Obviously it has helped William Byron, as I mentioned, first went on a road course and does it in an interesting it was interesting in that it was relatively new, DJ, for what we've seen from road courses recently, but not the last two weeks because this was the second consecutive cup race on a road course and the second consecutive cup race with only one caution flag. First time since June of 1978, according to NASCAR Man RR on, on uh, X uh, slash Twitter, uh, the last time there were two consecutive cup races with one yellow flag was June of 1978, Riverside and Michigan. So. Over the last two races, Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course and Watkins Glen, there was a stretch of more than three hours of green flag running, uh, the end of the Indy race and then the start of the Watkins Glen race. DJ, obviously a lot of this tied in the fact that NASCAR has gone away from yellow flags, having stage breaks, then having yellow flag on road courses and at Chicago this year. I'm sure that's something they're going to be looking at. When Jeff Burton was on the podcast last week, he said that he likes this concept but he thinks that nascar should look at it in the offseason and should see how fans reacted to it did it work out the way they intended what's your take on yellows not being used at stage breaks this year on road courses has it worked yeah you know i i, I like the idea that that nascar went away from stopping the race making it a, a caution uh at the end of the stages um I, I felt like that it brought some strategy play in a lot more I don't think we need to ever look at and think about stage breaks and the caution that comes with that as an opportunity to create more cautions. We know that that bunching the field up does create that. But if that's the sole reason that we're looking at it, then then we're looking at things the wrong way, in my opinion. In looking that there weren't there's not more cautions, I think that we have to look at a couple of things either the drivers are getting too good because of everything the information that they have and and not spinning out and and creating situations more or the the, the cars themselves have gotten so good that where last year i know they talked about how bad the cars drove and I, i've heard them say that a few times this year but if nobody's spinning out then these cars aren't driving so bad and so i'm not asking you know i'm not looking and saying that we need to make changes there for more cautions. It's, it's just interesting that 
when you get a difficult place like Watkins Land in particular, that, that people aren't running into each other more. I mean, we saw some opportunities that, you know, a caution might have been thrown uh, just for a, a spin, but, you know, the drivers were able to, to continue on. So, you know, you can't just throw a caution because you haven't had one. And there has to be a, a real uh, reason for that. So we could go back to, to stopping it, but it, again, it totally takes away that, that opportunity to really create any strategies that someone might want to, to get off on something different and, and do that. Uh, I'm sure that NASCAR is going to take a look at this. I know that, you know, this was something the fans were asked about also, and their overwhelming choice was to go away from the stage breaks just as they've done on the road courses this year. So maybe the fans will have a different opinion and, and uh, NASCAR will listen at that again. And, and uh, it is something that, that certainly needs to be looked at, but again, not just for the situation of creating cautions. Could be one of those, be careful what you wish for, but I yeah. wholeheartedly agree with you that, and I saw some of this on social yesterday that it almost seems like people want cautions because well, once they put double file restarts on road courses, that changed the game. And when you had a caution, it meant you would have more cautions. When I think of road course action, I'm not looking for guys running into each other constantly on restarts, <laughs> but yeah. that's essentially yeah. what seems to be the argument for, well, maybe that's why they need to have more cautions because it means it'll trigger more cautions, right? Yes. Like that to me, I, I, that doesn't really add up for me. Yeah, no, and let me add this. As I watched the race yesterday and it made me think back to, Indy last week a little bit too. But as I watched the drivers, turn one has become a, a, an area that they're using outside the runoff area there or where the, the lack of a better term, the curbing that they just run across now and have all of this space. So you've got way more room instead of being able, they, that, that the ripple strips there need to become uh, more prevalent to where if you get on them, it upsets your car more. They're just strictly driving across there and, and not slowing down. The same way after they, they go through the inner loop and, and uh, around, I don't know what the number of the corners, I think it's turn five now, but you know, they, they've got, you know, they've got 50, 60 yards of, of racing out there that they used to never have. So we're, we're giving them opportunity. How do we expect you know, anything to actually happen. Again, I'm not advocating needing cautions, but to make racing tighter for these drivers instead of just giving them wide open space that they can drive these cars so much, you know, the, the car's not going to get out of shape at that point. And I think the handling side of it goes away a lot by giving them all of this runoff area. And also, again, without knowing the exact numbers they went by, but but the left-hander uh, coming to to the last, last corner, they, they have more runoff room there. So you, you're not inviting closer racing by allowing them to have all of this runoff area. Well, I think that brings up, DJ, the argument over should NASCAR maybe enforce track limits the way we see it done in Formula One, where yep. Formula One says, if you go over this boundary, we're not going to count that lap. And it's led to a lot of controversies uh, in recent years in, in Formula One, I, I believe IndyCar has done it as well. Like they sometimes officiate areas of the track where if you can't put a wall there, should the sanctioning body or, or race controller, whoever say, well, if you run there, we're going to consider that out of bounds. Is that something NASCAR should even look at? Or is that just pretty much unenforceable? Especially like you said, on a track like Watkins Glen, where we're seeing the entire field swing out in yeah. an area of the track that they never used to race on before. Yeah. You know, I, I know that NASCAR wants to stay out of the officiating business as much as they possibly can, 
But, but you know, just like coming up at Daytona this weekend, we have out-of-bounds as you speak. You know, when you play a golf course, you know, there are certain places that you have out-of-bounds. And so I think that makes you do things differently. And, and so I, I really believe that something, you know, it, it, I think it would be more, you know, lines put there and, and you incorporate that. It, then you get into the, the the problem is you get into the situation like they'll have this weekend is someone forced down uh, below that out of bounds line, you know, and advancing your position. So there, there's a lot to take into consideration, but the technology is there to, to make all of this work. You, you could even put, uh, I, I'm sure with technology this day and time, it could be made much easier to where it's not just a call that you have to be visually watching that, uh, that, that there could be something that triggered that. So I think that's something that has to be looked at. If you don't want to, don't want to close that in and put a wall there to keep them from, from running way out there, uh, which I understand that, uh, because you don't want to tear the cars up, but you, but you have to enforce something here to where, you know, that's just not wide open space that the drivers have to race on. Going back to what you were saying about the car, because I think this was another part of this discussion is, is the car almost too drivable? And that, you know, it's, it's got the independent rear suspension. It's got like this sports car type platform, better braking, better turning, you know, two things that I seem to notice a lot of drivers saying that everybody was kind of running the same lap times yeah. and that's not going to engender a lot of passing, unfortunately. And then the wheel hop that we used to see the mistakes drivers would make it in the corners, obviously with the independent rear suspension, the wheel hops pretty much been eliminated. Is that something NASCAR should even look at? Or is it something that even could be done? I mean, or is that just the car is what it is and they have to sort of learn to live with? It? Yeah, I, I don't, I think with the braking systems that, that, that are there now and with the independent rear suspension, I, I don't know that we're going to get into a wheel hop situation. I mean, you saw what happened in the Xfinity race on Saturday. It created who won the race uh, yeah. on Saturday. Saturday, basically, Sam Mayer got into a, a situation going into turn one where he started wheel hopping and, and that got him into the car of Ty Gibbs and, and eventually, you know, won Sam Mayer the race. But uh, that's not going to happen. The, the braking systems are so much better. They're so much bigger and, and better. It, it took away an advantage that some drivers had. And Chase Elliott was one of those that had figured out how to utilize the brakes better than others had. And, and that was a big advantage that he had when he won. It, you know, an advantage that he used to, that he figured out how to, to make. It, it wasn't an advantage that Hendrick Motorsports had. It was just how Chase figured out a way to drive and, and utilize it and make it his advantage. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to get into that situation here. I, I think there's one thing in, in my mind that, this could help everywhere when we talk about short track racing and things that need to be done. It works right into the, the road courses also. And, and that's increasing the horsepower of these cars to where uh, everybody's not running the same speed. Because if you up this horsepower, and we're not talking about a little bit whenever you're talking about doing this, you, you're talking about so much that it's going to make it to where the drivers really have to work the throttle and you're going to be carrying more speed into these corners and things are going to happen. It's going to change the way that they would have to drive these race cars. And, you know, I, I don't know that I was an advocate before this, but in watching the last few short track races and, and road course races, I really believe this something this is something that is going to have to be implemented sooner than later. And the drivers have been talking about it for quite a while. I don't always believe the things that the drivers are asking for. But in this case, I do believe that it would help them and help the racing at a lot of places. 
So that would mean what well, I think they're about like 650 horsepower right yeah. now, like up it by like a hundred or 200, like get back up to like the 750, 800 range or. Yeah. I, I think 800 would be a great number for this. Yes. You mentioned Chase Elliott. I want to get to him in a second, DJ, because obviously he was the second biggest story of this race, but fastest race in Watkins Glen history for the NASCAR cup series, just under two hours. What do you think are the expectations for a cup series race? Because I've seen some people say on social that if the cup race isn't three hours long, they feel like they're not getting their money's worth. Do you think that there's an ideal length for a cup race or a minimum that it has to be? Or can it be okay that, hey, if we run a road course race without stage break yellows and it's two hour ballpark, that's fine. Because we know we're probably going to get a who knows how long this weekend at Daytona. (laughs) Saturday night could be three and a half hours for 400 miles. What's your take on ideal race lengths in cup? Yeah, I think that's the difficult thing to, to answer, Nate, is because each race is going to be there. I mean, you just think of times that we've had a lot of cautions at Watkins Land and, and the race went over three hours and multiple overtimes to finish things out. So, But yesterday happened to be one of those that nothing was happening as far as to slow the pace of the, the race down. And, you know, you're, you're going to have that at times. I mean, you know, it, it's no different than, you know, you have – football and basketball games where you don't have as many fouls and penalties along the way that, that they move along quicker like that. Of course, they, they have breaks whenever you have a possession, you have the end of quarters and things like that. So I, I do think with the price of things that, that fans, that if they were only sitting there two hours, that's not exactly what they thought that they were paying for when they paid uh, a nice price for a good ticket. And, uh, you know, I think the the weekend experience is is great and probably still well worth the ticket, but they weren't expecting to, to be out of there uh, that quickly and, and not seeing more. So do, do you look at making the race a little bit longer then? Um, you know, the, the first couple of stages are, were pretty short there and, and, you know, happened extremely quickly the, the way that things went. So maybe that's a consideration here that if we want to look into that, that, we just simply make the, the, the races at these places uh, a few laps longer. That's an interesting idea because I think that a longer race might have given NASCAR a little bit more moments in the race. Not to say this race lacked for drama, but yeah. the most dramatic moment was what brought out the yellow. And that was yeah. Chase Elliott running out of fuel. Interesting, DJ, we heard on the broadcast that there was some miscommunication. Well, not really miscommunication between Chase Elliott and the team. The team told Chase Elliott he had this many laps on his reserve tank. And as it turned out, that was an error that the team made. Alan Gustafson, Chase Elliott's crew chief, was asked about this afterward. And he said, It's internal stuff. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go over our internal struggles in the media so yeah i mean i'm certainly i'm not going to go over internal stuff in the media and i'm certainly not going to educate everybody else on the problem so well i mean look you you know to win you have to have very little margin right i mean that's what winning is is you're going to make sure you exploit everything to the highest percentile possible so anytime you're trying to push yeah you're cutting margins so that gets riskier and riskier during our broadcast, I thought Steve Wattart did a great job explaining yep. this. So, Marty, they said they had three laps from the switch. That seems like a tremendous amount of fuel. So, Steve Chase Elliott now down a lap. He'll have to race for the free pass. So, let's go back to some radios that happened about 10 laps before they were scheduled to come to pit road. We'll take it when he says, hey, when I hit the switch, how many laps do I have? Here's what Alan Gustafson and Chase Elliott said on the radio. Got about 10 more. We're going to run to the switch. It'll be on you. We have three laps on the switch. 
So you will pass me twice once you switch it. So then Chase Elliott came on the radio, said, I'm on the switch. Alan Gustafson said, fine. Two more laps, you go by me. All right, you're going to pit this time. This time, we'll get you a drink. Butter. I'm on two. I'm out of gas. I don't. Just come to us whenever you can. Get wrong information. So, Steve, help me understand, what could the wrong information be that Alan Gustafson is talking about? Well, Marty, it's a lot to digest, so I think the best thing to do is explain to the fans exactly what is in the fueling system of a next-gen car. For that, we're going to go to our Toyota virtual car and take a look at the fuel system. The simple idea is you have a box full of fuel to get you back to pit road. Now, the misinformation, Marty, to the whole crux of this has to be how far you can go. Three laps at Watkins Glen is basically two gallons just shy, 1.7 gallons of gas. There is zero chance that box holds that much fuel. Right. Three laps at Charlotte, maybe. Three laps of Richmond, maybe four laps. But at one of the largest racetracks we race at, as are most road courses, at north of two miles, two and a half miles, really, that has to be the misinformation. To think they could run three laps on the reserve a simple miscommunication. We talk about pressure, pressure to make the playoffs, pressure of a season where you've lost your driver for a bunch of races. There are so many details these crew chiefs have to go through. Allen rarely makes a mistake, but this is a mistake by the nine team. What did you make, DJ, of, of this error by the number nine team? And was it a result of Chase Elliott pretty much feeling as if, hey, I know I've got to win this race or Daytona to make the playoffs. Were he and Alan Gustafson, the whole number nine team, maybe feeling the pressure a little bit? Um, I think there's definite you can put this on feeling the pressure, and I don't think this was the only race that that's happened to this driver and, and this team. Not being in this situation ever probably to where they, they came down to, you know, having to, because they usually have won by now, uh, but, yeah. but they found themselves in a year uh, that has been like no other uh, for Chase Elliott, the driver, uh, or for this race team uh, with, with circumstances that, that they've had to do things and look at things differently. And, you know, quite honestly, you know, they haven't had the speed. And, and the other thing that you look at, when you have your teammate, William Byron, running up front, being faster than you and qualifying by a lot and winning races on a regular basis, you know, that, that does add pressure. You can try to deflect that as much as you want, but when your teammates are beating you, that's worse than getting outrun by uh, other manufacturers and other teams. And so I think that that pressure has had a lot to do with, they realized that, you know, coming to Watkins Land, they had to win one of the two. The good thing is they still have an opportunity to make the playoffs. There's nothing in my mind that says that Chase Elliott can't go and win at Daytona on Saturday night. Yeah, you have to have a lot to go right. And most of the time, you're trying to dodge things that can go wrong in, in this situation. But, you know, not having to worry about, you know, do we race for stage points? You know, where do we try to position ourselves? They don't have to worry about any of that. This is simply give Chase Elliott the, the best opportunity that, that we can to, to be up front in the latter stages of the race on Saturday night and let his talents take over from there. You know, take the fastest car that you can to that point but i do when when they when it first started yesterday I, I was blown away by the fact that i heard three laps 
I didn't yeah. know that. Steve Lattard, as you pointed out, did a magnificent job once again uh, of educating all of us. The race fans that we have that are watching uh, on NBC and, and USA, those of us that have been in the sport a long time, it was fascinating to see and hear all of that and understand it a lot better as to how these systems work. But I really thought when they pitted as early as they did the first time that, that they were kind of putting themselves in a box there that everything had to go perfectly. So it was like they were kind of throwing a Hail Mary right from the very beginning as early as they could. Yeah, and that was another thing that Gustafson talked about, DJ, is that they let themselves no margin because they had to do this strategy to leapfrog by essentially undercutting the other leaders. They had to pit on lap 17, which was probably a lap or two earlier than everybody else. I think I actually was like three or four laps earlier than yeah. McDowell and, and Byron ended up pitting on. And it worked. Chase Elliott went from 13th to 6th yep. by pitting early, but it put them right on that margin. And the, everybody wants to blame Gustafson. I understand the crew certainly is complicit, but I don't think it can be overlooked that the reason they were in this position was because Chase Elliott qualified 15th. Right. And, you know, to your point, when Byron and Larson are, are making the, the final round and, you're the guy qualifying 15th and Chase Elliott owned that. He said, I just put together a horrible lap. I mean, it wasn't just this moment. I mean, certainly that was what running out of gas ended his chances, but yeah. it started way before that. It started the day before in terms of lack of execution for the team and driver. Yes. And and we've seen this in a lot of weeks to where they, they haven't had the speed that they're accustomed to having and, and it haven't had the speed that their teammates have had. So, you know, exactly what is it, you know, where's this line of communication I know, you know, we go back to early in the season with Chase's injury, missing time when everyone else was working on their cars and, and working with their drivers, you know, and, and we're seeing the same thing, you know, with his teammate and Alex Bowman with the races that he missed. Neither one of them have had the speed that we are used to seeing from, from these two drivers. So uh, you, you have to understand that they got behind. And when you're behind trying to catch up, it, it makes you do things that you're First, not comfortable in doing, and second, you haven't had to do these, so you're not really sure how to go about it. And yeah. when you're not used to being in that situation, you're not exactly sure of the timing of that. So I, I think a, a couple of things. It, it does sound like that that maybe Allen was given some wrong information as to how far they could go that he relayed to Chase, and, and that's what they went off of. I understand them not wanting to discuss all of this. It, it does no good to discuss it. It was a mistake, and, and mistakes do happen in the sport, and you, you try to learn from that. But but this certainly was costly, and, and I'll say costly in a way that it took away any chance that they had. I do not believe that they, as the rest of the field, didn't have anything for William Byron. I honestly believe they couldn't have got on any strategy that was going to put them in front of their teammate yesterday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, we certainly saw that. Ty Gibbs, A.J. Allmendinger, Kyle Larson at one point. A lot of drivers yeah. seem to have really fast cars, but again, everybody seems to be running the same speed, and it's a track position game right now on road courses. And bring up a great point, DJ. I mean, this is Chase Elliott's eighth season in the Cup Series. He's never missed the playoffs, and yeah. he's never really been in this position, to your point, even though winless his first couple of years in cup, but I don't think they were ever right on the cut line, certainly the way they have been this year, below the cut line so much. And this is new for Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, now we know with Alex Bowman, Chase Elliott, both of them aren't locked in. Uh, we know one of them at least isn't going to miss the playoffs. So that means two major sponsors here, Ally for Bowman, Napa for Chase, 
at least one, maybe both, doesn't make the playoffs. I've heard you kind of touch on this before. What kind of knock-on effects might that have for Hendrick Motorsports if they don't have these really big companies a part of the playoffs? Yeah, you know, this is is something that you, you don't want to see because, you know, we value all the sponsors in the sport that that are willing to come in. And of course, they all understand when they come in, there are no guarantees when you come in. It's, you, you have to perform at a high level uh, with the intensity and how many good teams we have in the sport uh, this day and time. You know, it, it's just not a given. And, and then you look at both. I, I think that maybe Hendrick Motorsports gets a little bit uh, of a pass here from their sponsors because they have performed over the years. You know, Alex Bowman and Chase have both won races over the last few years. They found themselves in the playoffs. Chase obviously winning the championship. So there are a lot of good things that have happened. I think that both though, are are maybe are given a a little bit of a pass here because of the injuries that they had and and had to be knocked out of or or taken out of the car uh, for a number of races. Alex Bowman, you can even look at the penalty that they got. Without that penalty, they're in a much better situation of possibly making it in on points. They at least have that opportunity they would have uh, when they go to Daytona this week. But that's not the case. They, you know, they, they put themselves in this position. They've had ample opportunities to, to go run better and, and, and try to get a, a win or to gather more points. And, and neither have been able to do that. And again, I think it just shows you the value of, of teams and drivers being together for a full year as other teams and their drivers are working and, and experiencing and becoming better. So it's not a good look for Hendrick Motorsports, obviously, that their two biggest sponsors both possibly aren't going to be in the playoffs. One of them, for sure, as you pointed out, isn't going to be there. But um, again, I think that these sponsors understand the value of being in the sport and and they do understand that certain things are going to happen and the possibility of years like this happening are out there. It's not over yet for Elliott or Bowman, certainly Elliott. I mean, we've seen him, he's, you know, not a Daytona 500 winner, but we've seen him win at Talladega. We've seen him run really well at Daytona. Yet Elliott didn't really strike an air of confidence when he was asked about Daytona (laughs) the day before Watkins Glen. He essentially described it as well if i go in there feeling i've got to win it's like walking into a casino in vegas full of slot machines and picking out the one that's going to pay out if i put a quarter in yeah what's your view of i guess his attitude looking at daytona should he be more positive is there a way to be positive or is it better just to be realistic especially given that you look at daytona's recent history the daytona 500 this year certainly the cutoff race last year it does seem like there's a lot of wreckage. There's a lot of attrition. It just seems like those are the way these races go right now. I, I understand what Chase is saying. And, and you know, this has kind of been the way that he has handled situations over the years. So I, I'm not surprised to hear him speaking in this way. It, it is really hard for anyone that is sitting outside that cut line to be really, really positive because you just don't know. He may be leading the, the race on the last lap on Saturday night and, you know, literally not get back to the start-finish line. Uh, so you, it's just hard to have a mentality that, hey, I, I feel really good about our chances. Uh, I, I think that probably internally he knows that he's going to have a car that will be capable of winning the race, but it, it's hard to exude that confidence at, in, in this particular race because of what, history tells us and what we've seen recently. And 
I think if he wants to look at something that's more positive, he and Alex Bowman in the last 13 Coke Zero 400s, we've had 13 different winners. So uh, <laughs> neither one of them is named Chase Elliott or Alex Bowman. Yeah, that, that does give them some opportunity to do that. But there's a whole list of them lined up there, too, that, that's trying to do the same thing. And you know, you've got five former winners at Daytona that you know are sitting outside the, the playoffs right now. But I get where Chase is coming from. That, that has been the way that he has been. I appreciate him not changing and just saying, trying to get all pumped up about this. I know that if this should happen for him, that he's going to be extremely excited and we'll see probably some emotion that maybe we haven't seen from Chase Elliott since he won the championship, uh, if he's able to pull off this win Saturday night. I know a lot of Chase Elliott fans would be happy to see the most popular <laughs> driver showing those kinds of emotions because I think you're right. This has obviously been the toughest season of his career. Beyond the cut line drama, DJ, I, I want to finish here. You mentioned that you think William Byron, probably the championship favorite right now. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, drama right now, too, around the regular season point standings and capacity for a lot of movement like sixth through tenth playoff points involved there, but also the regular season title, uh, Martin Trex Jr. is up 40 points on Denny Hamlin, roughly. But I think it's interesting, like Byron now leads on playoff points. So I think he's got a good chance now of finishing third in the regular season and, and getting yeah. the playoff point bonus from that. So Byron could still have the most playoff points yeah. leaving Daytona, regardless of if Truex or Hamlin wins the regular season title. So does that kind of bolster... What you were saying earlier, does it feels like Byron is maybe the, the championship favorite right now, given all that? I think there's a couple of things. That's certainly uh, in getting, the, I believe it'll be nine points for Byron if he ends up third, which it looks like he will. So so that puts him at another level. And, and even if Truex goes on and looks like he's probably going to win the regular season championship, you know, that's going to, um, unless he goes and wins a couple of stages, which hasn't been something he's done a whole lot at Daytona himself, No, then he's going to, you know, had the second most points there. But your point is that William Byron is going to probably have the most playoff points heading into the playoffs, which I believe shows that with what he's been able to do, not just with the race wins, but getting the stage wins, that, that this is something that's very valuable. He's going to continue to get stage wins, probably he's going to have at least one, if not a couple uh, of race wins just to continue to add to this. I believe that's why his path going to the, the championship four, it's going to be as good as anyone out there. And when you have that number of points, I believe that's why you put him on top. Yes, he, he doesn't have a championship like Martin Truex Jr., who will be you know probably one of the, the only one of the, the top three there uh, that, that does have a championship as, as Denny tries to, to chase down that elusive championship for himself. So, But I, I think in what I look at, you, you have to look at Byron because you know, the first thing you have to do to be considered the favorite to win the championship is to get to the championship four. And his number of, of playoff points, I believe, puts him in that position to to make him that favorite already. So do you feel like right now it's Truex, Byron as favorite, favorite 1A, and then Hamlin? Would you put anybody else in that four? It feels like it's just been week to week. It kind of changes. Yeah, it, it does. It, and it seems that way to me. Uh, and I think that Denny has to be put in there because, you know, as we talk about Byron being able to win anywhere now, uh, we've seen that. Obviously, Martin Truex Jr. has been that person that has shown that he can win anywhere on any type of track other than maybe Daytona and Talladega. But he only has to deal with Talladega in the playoffs. And so uh, then you, you look at, you know, who might that fourth person be? And, and I think that 
the obvious choice. I mean, this seems like that it's lining up as a Hendrick versus Gibbs possibility. And, and I'll put Larson. He has his moments, and and then when they're good, they're great, and when they're not, they're terrible. So um, uh, <laughs> he'll just have to figure out how to navigate each of the three race rounds that he goes through. But he has to be my fourth driver that I would look at right now. I, I think this is going to be a tough playoff for the Fords as they try to to move through this and and see what they can do. Certainly defending series champion Joey Logano, not something we've talked about much, but those four you mentioned, I think they're going to be tough and a lot to be watching for over the final 11 races, starting with the regular season finale from Daytona Saturday. Always appreciate you being on the NASCAR NBC podcast, DJ. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Nate. Our thanks again to Dale Jarrett for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Convoy for setting up the episode. You can watch the video episode of the podcast on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel and also find more NASCAR America Motormouths content and highlights from across the racing spectrum that's on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. Thanks as well to Dustin Long for providing the Alan Gustafson audio for this episode as always, you can check out Dustin's excellent work at NBCSports.com NASCAR. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's also now on Amazon Music as part of the NBC Sports collection on Amazon Music. You can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at Daytona International Speedway Friday and Saturday. You can head to NBCSports.com NASCAR for all the information and schedules on how and when to watch. That's at NBCSports.com NASCAR. If you have any NASCAR NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast.